Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. I've been a little busy as of late. My brother got married this past weekend, so I was dealing with family stuff. Uh, and They stayed a couple days extra, so been busy with that. Been busy writing up stuff for my talk that I'm going to give in Maryland. If you want to go down and look in the description, I've got that linked. It's Liberty Speaks in Goldsboro, Maryland. I'll be speaking there along with some other esteemed guests, including Spike Cohen. And uh, that'll be on Sunday the 9th. And on Saturday the 8th, I'll be going to Washington, D.C. to free Assange rally. I'll get into that with Dave because he's going to be speaking there. Uh, but yeah, if you're in the Beltway area, you can come visit me if you want. Um a lot has gone on the last couple weeks. I had Ryan Dawson on a couple weeks ago to talk about his take on everything that's going on, and a lot has happened since then. So I figured I'd have an expert on. He is, of course, the news editor for Antiwar.com and the sh the host of the new show, uh, Antiwar News with Dave DeCamp. Dave DeCamp, how you doing, man? Good, Reed. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely, man. So um, everything's going to shit, and... I don't really, uh, <laughs> I, I am not personally someone who has any authority on what's going on. So I have guys like you on to talk about it. So um, first off, I wanted to get your opinion on the Ukrainian counteroffensive that's taken place over the last couple of weeks. Uh, have they really retaken a lot of ground and are they really pushing back against the Russians strongly now? Or is it more of a facade? What's your take on that whole situation? Yeah, well, it's tough to say uh, to know exactly what's going on on the ground there. But Ukraine has over the past few days uh, as well. They've they've been regaining some territory from Russia, not just in the northeastern Kharkiv region where they had that counteroffensive before. Now they're making gains in the south in, in Kherson. So uh, they're definitely making gains. The question is, is if is Russia right now defending, trying to really defend these areas or are they pulling back? and preparing uh, while they're getting reinforcements and stuff. Because Putin recently ordered the mobilization of 300,000 new troops, and there's you know reports of just lots of tanks and stuff heading into Ukraine. And I know uh, you know other people that follow this the battlefield stuff more so than I do, they're saying that they expect a big Russian push to come uh, when it gets colder, when the rainy season passes, and it, it's winter and the ground is harder there. Um, but, uh, right now, you know, optically it, it doesn't look good for Russia, it, like PR wise, it, it looks pretty bad because they just formally, uh, annexed these four regions in Ukraine. Um, the two breakaway Donbass republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, who have been asking to join Russia since 2014, but then also, uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia, which Kherson or Kherson, people pronounce it differently is North of Crimea. And then Zaporizhia is just east of it, and that connects it to the Donbass, which connects to Russia. Um, so a big part of the reason why they took that territory is to secure, you know, what you call a land bridge to Crimea and make sure Ukraine doesn't shut the water supply off again. But they had the referendums, you know, who knows how, uh, you know, accurate they were. Again, in the Donbass, I think people have been looking to join Russia for a while, and they've been... Uh, you know, there's been a war going on there since 2014. They've been getting shelled by Ukraine for a while, uh, but it is different in the other territories. And a lot of you would think a lot of the pro-Ukrainian people have fled pro-Kiev people have fled. Um, but so but Putin just yesterday, he signed the 
the formal annexation of these territories. So now, you know, the Kremlin was asked about these losses because um, that's the thing. It's not just like it's Western media reporting this. It's Russian officials, Russian installed officials in those regions are acknowledging that they're retreating. Um, so when the Kremlin, when the Kremlin was asked, you know, is it like a contradiction that you're saying you're taking these territories, but you're also losing uh, all this ground? And the Kremlin said, no, we're, we're going to take it back. It's Russia forever is what they said. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think they're going to be pretty determined to take it back. And, uh, I think it's going to get real, uh, bloody there over the next few months. And I think Ukraine's taken a lot of losses in these counteroffensives, but you know, I mean, they, are uh, definitely making gains, so we'll just see see how things shake out. But the the situation now, I mean, it's just if it wasn't so dangerous already, what Putin really did by taking these territories, and uh, you know, he recently said that Russia would use all the weapons at its disposal to defend its territorial integrity, and that means its nuclear weapons. And other Russian officials said that and made clear that they're talking about these new Ukrainian territories. So now they're going to consider these counteroffensives attacks on Russia. Um, So they're kind of upping the ante, uh, setting up for potential retaliation against the U.S. and NATO because the U.S. and NATO, I mean, they're not just giving Ukraine weapons. They're also providing intelligence. They're doing war games for them. And who knows exactly how close they are. Uh, And there's CIA on the ground and there was just a report in the intercept yesterday of all places that said there's special operations forces, U S special operations forces in Ukraine. Uh, we already knew there was British and other few other European countries, but you know, it's not a surprise. It's, you know, I pretty much assumed that they were there, but now, um, you know, now we know for sure that there are U S troops on the ground, despite Biden saying he would never send U S troops there. Um, so the situation is just really dangerous and and who knows what's going to happen. And you have all these kind of neocons and, and liberals and stuff saying Putin's bluffing and, and that they have to stop him and drive him out of Ukraine. It's just really uh, not a good situation. Yeah. So I know uh, you can't tell the future any better than the rest of us can. But um, in 2015, I believe Luhansk and Donetsk actually wanted to join Russia and Putin denied that request is that correct yeah 2014 they asked him a few times since the coup in 2014 i'm not sure if they held uh, i know they held referendums at one time but i know like the government the self-declared republic there was was trying to join russia for a while so my question is do you think that this is going to be enough to satisfy him or do you think he's going to want to keep pushing west and take all of ukraine um, or do you think the restraint he's shown in the past tends to signify that this is really what they want? I know that's not something you can answer with certainty, but what is your gut feeling? I mean, I think it depends on what happens in the next because Putin would have been happy with a Ukraine that wasn't aligned with NATO uh, that had all the territory it had before 2014. Um, even maybe Crimea, uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, Russia had a big military base there. They leased it. Uh, technically leased it from Ukraine. So it's like they right. had control in that area, but they had this government that was very hostile to Russia. Um, so I think, and then after the war started, there was this peace deal on the table. Um, we don't know for sure exactly how close they were to signing it, but the reports say that they were pretty close and Russia would have pulled back 
to the territory controlled before February 24th, which was just Crimea. And then they didn't even technically control those areas in the Donbass. That was the separatists. Um, so as the war goes on, you know, Ukraine stands to lose more. So I think right now they're going to focus on consolidating this area, especially Donetsk, because Donetsk, the Donetsk Oblast, Russia only controls like a little more than half of it. And they've said when asked, you know, what's the how much longer is this, you know, what they're calling special military operation going to go on? The Kremlin has said at least until we capture Donetsk, like I can say for sure we're doing that. Um, so that's going to be the focus. And then if they capture this territory and the rest of these other areas, because Kherson and Zaporizhia, they don't control the whole oblast. Um, so then they might go for the, th those areas. And then if, you know, there's still not happy, if there's still no talks on the table or if nothing changes with the leadership in Kiev, then I would guess that they would go to Odessa. I think that would be their next move. Um, and then I think Lavrov has kind of said this, the foreign minister, that as the war goes on, as as Ukraine gets more weapons and longer range weapons from NATO, you know we're going to go further into Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll see. Again, we'll see how they respond to these Ukrainian counteroffensives. Um, I think with the reinforcements and stuff, they're going to be able to start making some some gains again. The Russians, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. So Russia has obviously threatened uh, the use of nuclear weapons to maintain their uh, terrain that they have. And now Poland is offering the United States to host nuclear weapons. Is that right? What's uh, what's going on there? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's something that they've asked for before. So the way it works, there's this thing called NATO's nuclear sharing program. And under that, like non-nuclear states have U.S. nuclear weapons. Uh, Germany does, for instance. And this program, there's like varying degrees of it how much control they have over these weapons. So I know in Germany, they have a fleet of uh, warplanes to, to drop these bombs. So Germany could, could potentially you know, use these nukes themselves. And then they're also in, I might not get every country here, but there's also NATO nuclear sharing in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and in Turkey, and maybe Italy. Uh, but so it's all countries that were in NATO, you know, before the end of the Cold War. And they've said, oh, we won't bring these nuclear weapons into uh, any place east of Germany. Um, so uh, they've said that before, but now Poland's saying that they're in talks with it about it with the U.S. Um, so I haven't really seen any comments yet from U.S. and NATO officials about how, how they feel about it. But even just, you know, discussing it, I mean, that's just a big, pretty provocative toward Russia because, you know, this is kind of their whole gripe <laughs> one of the main reasons for the war is NATO expansion east of Germany and um, the threat of U.S. nuclear weapons being closer to Russia. Right. Um, I want to talk about Daria Dugina, uh, who was killed a few months ago. And now the United States is saying that Ukraine probably administered that assassination and they were trying to take out her father who's a russian nationalist uh could you give us the details on that what exactly they think happened yeah so this was pretty big yesterday the new york times reported that uh u.s intelligence thinks that elements of the ukrainian government killed daria dugina and she was killed in a car bomb outside of by a car bombing outside of moscow in august and the real target was her father most people think alexander dugan because she was driving his car and it's funny, the whole Dugan thing, you know, the Western media portrays him as uh, 
they call him Putin's brain. They say he's very influential and like, you know, everything Putin does, it's all Dugan's ideas, but that's not true at all from how I understand it. Uh, He's actually been very critical of Putin. I had a a listener comment on my episode that I did yesterday say Putin's never even met Dugan. And then I looked it up and sure enough, the two guys never even met. So I don't think he's that influential, Hmm. Um, but he is a supporter of the war and he you know, wanted Putin to do this a while ago. You know, uh, I, I believe at least as as uh, in 2014, he thought it Putin should have done a lot more. And um, so his daughter was killed and she was also she was a political scientist. I believe she was uh, maybe going trying to get a Ph.D. or something. She was still in school, but she was also a journalist and presenter on uh, Russian state TV, very supportive of the war. So she was killed. Um, it was pretty clear. I mean, that some elements of, of Ukraine, the Ukrainian government probably did this, but now the U S intelligence is saying that, which is interesting because you got to wonder why are they telling us that? And there's a few reasons why, uh, I think maybe, um, there, there might really be some, some people within, you know, the U S intelligence, like the deep state that are not happy with the Zelensky government with some of the things that they've been doing. Or maybe they just want to separate themselves from it, or they're preparing to kind of throw Zelensky under the bus if they're not happy with, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. maybe it's like a they're trying to give themselves some cover for if they want to maybe make a change in the leadership in Kiev or something like that. But I don't know. I'm just speculating there. But it's definitely interesting. And what's uh, Ukraine has denied that they were responsible, of course, and they denied again. But she was on that kill list. Um, I forget the name of the website. If you go on antiwar.com, it's it's in the article that I wrote at the top of the page. But it's this Ukrainian website, and it has thousands of people listed as enemies of Ukraine. And Dugina yeah. was there. And after she was killed, there's red lettering that says liquidated over her picture. And I nice. mean, there's all, all a lot of Americans and and uh, Westerners, Roger Waters was just put on there because of mm-hmm. the stuff he's been saying. There's a 13 year old girl on there because she's been critical. Is your name on there yet, or haven't seen it come up? Yet? Not that I know <laughs> of. Yeah, no. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, they just put a few people on. I, I'm blanking on who who was just added. But uh, and then also one thing I I put in my article because I think this was pretty revealing. After Dugina was killed, the Pope was talking about the war and how innocents always pay the price. Yeah. And he mentioned Dugina. He said that poor girl who blew up in Moscow, you know, innocents always pay. And Ukraine, like, uh, <laughs> freaked out at the Pope about that. Ukraine's mm-hmm. envoy to the Vatican, like, said something on Twitter, which, like, that doesn't happen. Diplomats mm-hmm. to the Vatican, they're not out there criticizing the Pope. And the Ukrainian foreign minister, he summoned the Vatican's diplomat in ukraine and like said it was so offensive that he said that i mean it's really just unbelievable because really like so they're saying she's not innocent so by that logic it's like people that have pushed for wars here in the u.s they does that mean that they're targets you know um so it's just the attitude that they have and how sensitive they are to any criticism we just saw with Elon Musk on Twitter. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, I saw he was making pretty obvious statements like, why should we care what Luhansk and Donetsk want, uh, do, especially if they vote on it? And just making kind of no-duh statements, but getting tons and tons of pushback. Lindsey Graham was commenting on it. 
Uh, I think Zelinsky actually weighed in on Twitter. It was pretty remarkable. Yeah. So it, it was funny because Musk, he's supported Ukraine in the war by giving them the Starlink. Uh, right. Uh, I know the US AID, I think, paid for some of them, but he says that SpaceX also put a, put a lot of money into that, sending these terminals there that uh, they're using a lot, from what I understand, like on the battlefield. The, they can connect to the internet pretty much anywhere because of them. I know they're using them to communicate with U.S. troops that are in Poland uh, to do like maintenance on weapons and stuff. So he's like really helped them. And even he can't uh, talk about a potential peace deal without everybody freaking out. I mean, Ukraine's ambassador to Germany, I think he might might be the outgoing ambassador because he got in trouble for something before. But he he just he like cursed out Musk on Twitter. I mean, just totally ridiculous. And like it just really goes to show that, you know, they want tens of billions of dollars in our in aid and weapons from the US and but they don't want like they don't want to hear a peep yeah. of criticism or like discussion <laughs> of peace. I mean, it's really unbelievable. How much money roughly has the United States given to Ukraine just during this invasion? So man. In weapons just shipped right to Ukraine or weapons that they're buying for Ukraine, it's over $16 billion. Mm-hmm. And that's just in weapons. They're also giving them what they call direct budgetary aid, which is just money that they hand to the Ukrainian government. Uh, I think that's been like $9 billion. And then there's other like what they call economic aid, humanitarian aid. So exactly how much they've actually sent to Ukraine, I'm not too sure, but it's like Tens close billions. to $30 yeah. Billion. yeah. And... Uh, Congress just passed and Biden signed into law another about 16 billion for uh, aid for U- Ukraine. So that brings the total of U.S. spending on the war, which includes aid for Ukraine, money for the Pentagon to replenish weapons and deploy more troops in Eastern Europe. So they're spending it in a few different ways, but it's spending on the war. It brings it up to about 67 billion, and that's less than a year. Yeah. And the entire Russian military budget for 2021 it's probably gone up since then but last year was 65.9 billion (laughs) so it's higher than that i mean it's just outrageous yeah that's freaking crazy um so i want to talk about nord stream 2 um so to me it doesn't make sense that putin would sabotage his own pipeline because first of all if he wanted to stop sending um natural gas to germany he could just shut off the pipeline on the supply end the only reasoning i can see behind him sabotaging it would be to blame it on nato or the united states or ukraine or something so he could escalate things even more but it doesn't really seem like he needs an excuse to escalate anything he's already you know he's already threatened nukes and shit so (laughs) i don't really get the point behind him doing this uh, and I know you probably don't want to speculate too much, but does it really make sense for Russia to be behind this or does it make more sense for a NATO ally to be behind this? Yeah, the Russia thing doesn't really make uh, much sense at all, because like you said, he doesn't need a reason to escalate when right. he you know, invaded on February 24th. He made a decision then that he doesn't care what what the U.S. and NATO are going to do. You know, he doesn't need a false flag to justify anything. He has all right. the pretext right now, even to bomb a NATO base in Poland. Not saying it would be justified, but like it's all that they're 
NATO is fighting a war on on Russia's border against Russia, mm -hmm. you know, for all intents and purposes. And so he has all the pretexts he needs to escalate. Um, and also, besides just the fact that it's a Russian pipeline, it's Russian gas that's been leaking into the Baltic Sea, and it's going to cost billions to repair, and they're talking about repairing it. Um, it also gave Russia leverage over Europe. It was It's always an option right now as we're going into winter. I mean, I really think the best bet for this changing, this situation changing, is if Europe, Europeans, and Germany specifically, kind of... Uh, change their governments and and just get fed up of all i mean they're winners it's their fuel rationing and stuff and you know i just keep reading that they're trying to uh limit gas use but they already can't do it and it's october uh, so mm -hmm. like it's gonna get really bad in winter to, to a point where it hasn't been in decades in europe so i think that could change something but russia's those pipelines were always kind of uh, again they could turn them on if, if germany wants um, that that's always an option that was there. And that was the option Russia would want to keep. Um, but one thing that's interesting is that, so there's Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, and they each have two sets of lines. Mm -hmm. And Gazprom, the Russian gas company, said Nord Stream 1, both lines there's were bombed. There was an explosion on both. And then Nord Stream 2, only one line. So they said, oh, it looks like the other line is good. Uh, you know, just say the word and we'll start shipping gas through it, <laughs> which... Mm -hmm. Um, because that's the one that the U.S. has tried to stop for years. That there, it was being built. The construction finished last year. The U.S. tried to stop the construction with sanctions, and they were threatening Germany. And they really didn't want that pipeline to be done, which is you know gives the U.S. motive to do it. Um, so and then getting to that, like if you just look at motive and and who benefits from it, uh, it's. It's the U.S., obviously, um, but also, you know, some of the U.S. allies in the region, like Poland specifically, because Poland, they just opened this new pipeline from, uh, I think it, oh, man, I forget what country, but it's Baltic pipe and it and it's delivering gas to Poland, not nearly as much as Nord Stream can. I want to say Finland, but that might not be right. Don't quote me on that. But one of the Nordic countries, I think, this new pipeline. But anyway, and uh Poland has been very hawkish. You know, they're again, they're asking for nukes and stuff. Um, the British, maybe, you know, they're capable of it. And they've been one of the more hawkish uh, NATO members in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then the idea of them doing that kind of without the U.S. approval or a, a wink and a nod from the U.S. is hard to believe. Um, and then you look at the investigation right now. It's like the Swedes are investigating it. Um, and I think the British. So, like, I don't... I think we it's going to be tough to trust the investigation because it's yeah. all the U.S. allies doing it. Um, so, I mean, we don't know if the U.S. did it, but it's the most likely suspect, I would say. Mm -hmm. And there's also U.S. military drills in the region practicing right. underwater mines and stuff and helicopters flying around in that area. I mean, there is always is the U.S. operates around there a lot. But, you know, they were in that area where the, the leaks happened pretty recently. Mm hmm. So, um, yeah, and Blinken uh, the other day said it's a tremendous opportunity, this attack, to get Europe off natural, off Russian gas. Biden and Victoria Nuland, before the war, they said, oh, we'll stop this pipeline. Nord Stream 2, they're talking about one way or another. Right. If Russia invades, no matter what Germany has to say about it. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, the coverage, like, in the mainstream has just been unbelievable. 
yeah. AP called it a baseless conspiracy theory that the U.S. was involved and like left out all this evidence, uh, you know, suggesting that they might that they would benefit from it. And also, there was this Polish. I don't know if you saw this. Radek Sikorski. He's a Polish member of European Parliament, so the EU's Parliament. And he wrote on Twitter right after it happened, "Thank you, USA," with a picture of the gas bubbling into the Baltic. <laughs> Yeah. So there's also I think that. you screenshotted it and said in case he deletes this, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he did eventually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's married to Anne Applebaum, which is interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's she writes for the Atlantic now, but she was like she worked at the Washington Post, just like neocon foreign policy, mm-hmm. very extremely anti Russia and Putin and stuff. So that's kind of interesting. Hmm. But um, so yeah, I mean, if I were to guess, if I were to make a bet on who did it, I would probably say the u.s or maybe one of their allies you know Mm -hmm. they if they did do it or had something to do with it they probably maybe had somebody else do it for them or like separated themselves from it in some way right but i mean man if they did that and also the reaction how they're not really acting like it's a big deal Mm -hmm. i think is also telling because it's one of the biggest um methane leaks single largest methane leaks ever and, you know, they always say they care about the environment and, and right. climate change and stuff. And they don't really seem to care that all this gas just dumped out into the Baltic Sea. Yeah. Just, eh, they don't really even have a word to say about it. Yeah, so it I doesn't add up kind of, yeah. the, from the liberals, you know, who um, the, <laughs> the the focus has shifted from we're all going to die in 10 years from climate change to Ukraine. Um, but I, I don't really take anything they say seriously. I mean, I got a letter in the mail the other day from the Democrats saying that the Republican who's running for Senate isn't going to stand up to big pharma like they will. And just like Democrats standing up to big pharma after the last two years is the most comical thing I've ever heard. So, you know, they yeah. just like, <laughs> never stand on anything at all. Neither do the Republicans, but it's just hilarious. Um, speaking of the governments in Europe, you know, trying to reassess and try to work with Russia, it seems the opposite's happening. Aren't there new sanctions coming out possibly against Russia instead? Yeah, I mean, so the EU, they apparently, according to these all these reports, agreed on this new sanctions package that would impose a price cap on Russian oil. And this has been been pushed by the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. This is her great plan. Uh, so the idea is that so in December, uh, the EU already passed a Russian oil ban, and that's going to take place in December. Uh, Hungary and I think a few other countries got exemptions because mm-hmm. they're landlocked and, and they get all, all their oil piped in from Russia pretty much like they don't really have the infrastructure to get off Russian oil. But anyway, so part of that, those sanctions is that Russia still Russian oil shipments still rely on insurance from Europe and the UK. So part of that sanctions package will uh, they won't be able to issue insurance for Russian oil shipments. So the idea with the price cap is that they would do it if the Russian oil was sold at a set price. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that is going to be a problem for Russia when they lose an insurance, they're, they're going to be able to recover and, and, and find other alternatives, but there probably will be like an initial maybe shock to the oil market when that happens. But so now they're trying to impose a price cap on Russian oil and Russia says it's going to retaliate. They're not going to cooperate that 
why would they cooperate? Like that, this whole plan hinges on Russia saying, okay, yeah, we'll only sell our oil for that price. Okay. The U S and Europe, like, no, of course they're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And they've also said that any country that tries to impose price caps on us, it's going to get cut off of energy entirely. Um, so, uh, it just seems like a suicidal move for the, for the U S and Europe to do not just for the threat of getting cut off of Russian gas, but if Russia retaliates by cutting slashing oil production, which they, which is what all these like oil industry experts and financial analysts are saying is going to happen. If they try to do this, that'll send global prices way up. And, and that would be, we would really feel that too, when it comes to gas and stuff. So I just, it seems like they're still going to try to do it, uh, even though everything is, every sign is saying that it's a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to shift gears a little bit here, uh, talk about Iran, the protests that have been going on there lately. Um, I wrote an article about this where I, I think it's extremely ironic to complain about the treatment of women in Iran if you don't criticize Saudi Arabia, which gets our support, whereas Iran doesn't. Um, but also, regardless of whether or not this these protests are completely organic, I mean, any U.S. involvement is just going to be used to put some sort of puppet government or something in place. But I was wondering, have you looked into this much? Do you think this is completely organic, or do you think this is being manipulated by some bigger force, or what's your take on that whole situation? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't uh, followed them too closely. I probably should have, you know, kind of looked into the protests a little more. But from what I've seen, I mean, it's really hard to tell because a lot of like the, the death tolls that we get are just from these like human rights organizations that we don't know if we can really trust the numbers that they're putting out. Um, but uh, it seems like, I mean, I'm sure at, at some level it was organic, but it was also being pushed a lot by there's this woman, uh, this Iranian that lives in New York. I, I forget her name, but she works for Voice of America, you know, which is U.S. government funded media. And there's this whole profile in The New Yorker about her and saying that she it, saying that she was the one like driving the protests. And, you know, she's met with all the neocons and stuff. And she goes on CNN and says anybody that wants the Iran deal and wants to live sanctions, uh, you know, saying that they're all apologists for the regime in Iran when uh even from how I understand it, all the even anti-government Iranian activists want the sanctions to be lifted on Iran. Mm-hmm. It's really hurt their economy. All it does is hurt the people and it gives the government. Because if you look at what uh, Khomeini said when he first made public comments about the protests, he says, oh, it's all being uh, it's the U.S. and Israel, which he might be right. I, again, I'm not in a position to say. But we know Israel carries out tons of covert operations inside Iran. I mean, people probably don't understand how much they have going on inside there. There's always assassinations Mm -hmm. and explosions at Iranian nuclear facilities and other industrial sites that are tied back to Israel. Um, So it's definitely possible that that they were very involved, but I just can't say for sure. Um, And Mm -hmm. I'm sure some of it is organic again because... uh, it was sparked over that woman dying in, in police custody. So I'm sure that that angered some people. Uh, but yeah, the concern is, is that Iran's been bombing Iraq because of it, the Kurdish areas in Iraq. And the U.S. actually shot down an Iranian drone uh, over North Iraq there uh, while this was happening. Um, so that's always an area where 
could that could spark a conflict between the U.S. and Iran. But when it comes to you know people in, in the U.S. and stuff saying that they want to help the Iranians, I mean, it is like a natural instinct if you see stuff like this going on to say, oh yeah. yeah. But you know, the thing that people have to be calling for is for the U.S. to lift sanctions because um, again, it hurts just the ordinary people. And it gives the governments, you know, an enemy to point at. All these governments right. that are under heavy U.S. sanctions, uh, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, uh, you know, the, everything, they just blame everything on the sanctions. And right. a lot of it, you know, the sanctions do do a lot of damage to their economies. But you're giving them, you know, this kind of foreign boogeyman to blame everything on. And when you have people, U.S. government officials come out, I mean, I remember Mike Pompeo would always say, oh, yeah, just brag about how they destroyed Iran's economy. I mean, that's not going to make people in Iran uh, sympathetic to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just yeah. doesn't make it. Imagine if another country was doing that to us, yeah. bragging about it. Yeah, to your point, I forget what the numbers were on this, but I saw Ryan do a video about how little the sanctions actually affect um, the, I think it was the Venezuelan economy. But since the sanctions do exist, that's what the Venezuelan government uses as an excuse for the starvation going on there. Uh, so, like, if your hope is that these people finally rise up and, you know, take their freedom into their own hands or whatever, the best thing you can do is give them nobody to hate except for their own regime. But uh, I saw absolutely fucking retarded takes from Cernovich about Iran and how yeah. if Trump were still in power you know, the the uh, current regime would be ousted and Iran would be free. And uh, lots of studies show that right after Soleimani got airstrike, that was like the most patriotic the Iranians had been for a long time. And there were tons of videos of them burning American and Israeli flags. So this whole idea that by making their lives miserable, you're going to get them to overthrow their own government's just ridiculous. Like let their own government be the biggest agitator. I mean, we if you think about when 9-11 happened, we didn't suddenly want to overthrow our own government or something. It actually gave us a sense of, oh, we're going to go get these guys who did this to us. So I don't know why anyone thinks it would be different when we do it to another country. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and yeah, the idea that tr Iran would be free if Trump was still in, I mean, it's just so uh, ridiculous. And and we have to get people have to shake this opinion, Americans especially, kind of the empire mentality. I mean, who cares what the government is in Venezuela or Iran, right. it's, it's none of our business. And I get people have, you know, their opinions about it, but just so much of our media, our whole culture is like designed for us to look at other countries and say, whew, I'm glad I don't live there. Yeah. It sure is great here in America. And I think <laughs> it is. I mean, I love like, uh, yeah. I'm not, you know, uh, I don't hate this country. I, I love living here and everything, but especially after the COVID lockdowns and everything, it's like, just stop focusing on these other countries. It doesn't matter. We shouldn't be trying to destroy other economies because we don't like their government. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of other countries that we shouldn't care about. Um, so Taiwan, uh, I, don't, I can't remember if I've had you on since Pelosi visited there. I think it was right before she went there that I had you on last time. Uh, but that has caused all sorts of havoc. And I saw that the Senate approved a bill for like six and a half billion dollars in uh, military aid to Taiwan. Did that ever become law or did that, has that gone anywhere or is that still just approved um, by the Senate? So it hasn't gotten too far yet. It was approved by the Senate foreign relations committee, but it hasn't been put to a vote in the Senate yet. Oh, okay. um, gotcha. But that, 
bill or some version of it, I think is going to get advanced. And uh, it's a huge deal. I mean, $6.5 billion in military aid for Taiwan over five years, which puts them up in the top contenders of recipients of U.S. Uh, foreign aid, military aid. And besides that, it it'll require sanctions in, in the event of Chinese aggression on Taiwan, which whatever, that's kind of a loose definition. And it'll also give Taiwan what they call the benefits of being a major non-NATO ally, mm-hmm. but they won't formally designate them as, as one because, you know, they don't even recognize Taiwan as a country. Um, but it, it would just be like a major shift in U.S. policy toward Taiwan. And what we've seen since Pelosi visited, uh, I mean, it was very obvious how China that China was going to have a big reaction. And since she went there, you know, afterward, they launched their largest ever military exercises around Taiwan. And they simulated a blockade and they've been flying planes uh, across. There's this line that separates the Taiwan Strait that actually the U.S. drew in the 1950s. It's a uh, unofficial, you know, dividing line between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait. And China used to avoid that crossing it. But since Pelosi visited just about every day, they're sending planes over that line. Um, so she really changed the dynamic in that sense. Um so China's just making it very clear, you know, if you keep increasing support for Taiwan, we're going to something, you know, they're going to keep increasing the military pressure. And at one point, will that be like some sort of attack? And the idea that they're going to invade Taiwan uh, isn't really right. I mean, maybe eventually, but they have options first, as they showed with those military drills. I mean, they could just put a, a blockade around Taiwan like very quickly. And what would the U.S. be able to do about it? Um, They could also, Taiwan controls these little islands that are basically on the mainland in southeast, on the southeastern mainland, on the other side of the Taiwan Strait, not where the island is, on the other side. Little uh, Kinmen Kinmen Islands are called. Um, And there's been Chinese drones flying around there, and one of them was shot down, uh, and it was only two miles away from a Chinese city. So that's another option. Uh, I'm not... There's no indication that China might do something like that yet, but they could probably take those islands very easily. And then how would the U.S. respond, you know? And now right now the attitude with these hawks, with Bob Menendez and Lindsey Graham, the ones really pushing this bill in Taiwan is that they haven't, they didn't do enough for Ukraine, which is why Russia invaded. You know, Mm. it's not the real lesson that they did, that they meddled in Ukraine and, and, and started arming them and stuff. There's, they think, or so they tell themselves to justify more spending on weapons and stuff, that with Taiwan, oh, Taiwan's going to be different. We're going to start giving them billions of dollars in military aid before there's a war, but really it's just going to make war more likely. And it's very obvious. I mean, it's, it's very clear from the situation. Um, China doesn't want to invade Taiwan. They want to reunify, as they call it, or unify. Right. Um, but they would much rather do that you know, peacefully, as they stated many times. And I don't think there's a reason to think that they're lying about this Um, because it's just not in their interest. The trade between Taiwan and China is huge. Um, It's also easier, right? Like if you're attacking Taiwan, then you're making a bunch of enemies of people that you want political reunification with. It's kind of like in, um, I mean, that's kind of why Putin didn't just absolutely destroy uh, the eastern parts of Ukraine because he wanted reunification with those regions, right? It's kind of the same idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just a lot of reasons why China doesn't want to invade Taiwan. 
But at the same time, they're saying they're not ruling force out as an option. And so, uh, again, it's similar situation with Russia and Ukraine in the sense that uh, it's just a red line for China. Like, don't cross that line or we're going to do something. And we keep going towards that line Mm -hmm. faster than I thought we would. So another news, um, North Korea's firing missiles over Japan. Why are they doing that? What's going on there? Well, um, so North Korean like ballistic missile tests have become a regular thing again, um, starting really at the end of last year. Because for a while, you know, thanks to Donald Trump, uh, it was pretty calm over there when it came to the military drills. Uh, you know, they didn't really make much concrete progress on any kind of deal or anything, but the U.S. and South Korea stopped doing those big war games that they do, and North Korea stopped launching missiles. But uh, since Biden came in, he hasn't done anything to kind of uh, try to uh, be more diplomatic towards the North or anything like Trump did. Uh, so it's just kind of got back to what it was before with North Korea launching these ballistic missiles, which has come become pretty frequent again. And they just did it over Japan for the first time since 2017. Um, so that's pretty uh it's significant and now it just seems like it's a regular thing again and the u.s and south korea have responded by doing more drills and their own missile tests and it's just a tit for tat now that's what that's the situation we're in but i know one of the war games that the u.s and south korea did recently um they simulated assassinating uh kim jong-un it was part of the drill is you know and this is war games that the u.s is doing right you know on north korea's border um, simulating taking out their leadership. Uh, so it's provocative to them. And then they respond with all these missiles and, uh, the new president, I know, uh, moon is, is more, uh, uh, or is it Yoon? See, I, I don't know too much about South Korea, so I probably shouldn't say too much about the president then, but, uh, <laughs> I just know he's more hawkish toward North Korea than, uh, his predecessor who favored, uh, reunification, uh, with the North. Gotcha. Well, that's all I got for international uh, hellish uh, escalation toward nuclear holocaust. So uh, (laughs) providing we all survive until the weekend, which isn't far away, uh, you and I are going to be down in Washington, D.C., and you're going to be speaking at a hands off Assange event. I've got a link in the description to that event. So if you guys are interested in going, you can go down and click on that and it'll give you all the information. But uh you're going to be speaking alongside a lot of other esteemed guests like uh, Spike Cohen, obviously, uh, but then Jill Stein. Um, why can't I think of the guy's name? Um, uh, who's the like huge big time leftist that's going to be there? Oh, Chris um, Hedges. Chris Hedges. Yeah. Um, lots of people. So what's what's going on there, man? <clears throat> yeah. So it's this Saturday, October 8th in D.C. at the Department of Justice. It starts It's from 12 to 3. And uh, um, it's, you know, it's a rally for Assange. I mean, the current situation is that his extradition has been approved by the British and they're trying to appeal it. Um, so it's just important because it gets barely any any coverage in our, you know, in the media, um, which is really unbelievable because if he's extradited and convicted under the Espionage Act that, you know, they would be putting him away for doing journalism. He's a publisher. He just published uh, all these documents that he received from Chelsea Manning. Um, You know, a lot of people call him a whistleblower, which he is in a sense that he blew the whistle on powerful people. But in the technical sense, when you talk about 
whistleblowers and, and journalists and publishers. He's a publisher. He's a journalist. He received the leaks. Manning was the one that uh, released the classified uh, information, and she did time for that. She went on trial for that. But now they're trying to put Assange away for receiving the documents and publishing them, which they've never done before. And this press could set a precedent to the level of uh, not just these huge WikiLeaks-style dumps where they release all these documents, but even just regular journalism. Say you have a source within the Pentagon and they don't like it. You know, maybe it could get to that point. That's how bad mm -hmm. things could get. I mean, this is right. freedom of the press, like, is very much threatened by this. And already, I mean, there's many ways, the way the media media landscape works there's already lots of censorship and people being persecuted for doing things uh that don't fall in line but if they use this espionage act to lock up assange i mean a lot of more more people could end up in his situ situation uh so it's really important it's one of the most important issues on the planet um so if people are in the dc area um i live in virginia i'm, I'm about three hours south two and a half hours south of dc um, but you know, anybody in the area that can make it just go and, and show, show some support for Assange. And there's also protests around the country and around the world. You can go to handsoffassange.com to find protests in other cities in London. They're going to be surrounding British parliament, which is pretty cool. I know there's one in Denver, Colorado, where Kyle Anzalone is going to be speaking. There's one in San Francisco. Um, but if you go check out that website, you'll see other cities and I, all the stuff, this, this, speakers and stuff it's going to be put up on youtube and and it's going to be streamed i think too so i'll try to share that on twitter or something when i figure that stuff out but yeah and reed's going to be there and uh i'm trying to think of some more names i know eliza blue she's that human uh yep. she's going to be there yeah human trafficking survivor yeah yeah and yep. uh kevin gostela who's probably <clears throat> like the best journalist on assange and 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 uh whistleblowing stuff in in general um joe loria consortium news scott Ritter's going to be there uh let's see who else i should have the list in front of me but it's a lot of people um and it's cool i think it's better because you know we're all giving the speeches i think are going to be pretty short but i think that's mm -hmm. good for like you know if they want to upload them like a little five minute speech you know it's going to be keep that keeps people's attention uh yeah so just one after another it's gonna it's gonna be a pretty good event oh and people should check out so stella assange julian assange's wife she was just on the on uh pierre's morgan show yesterday in right england with john uh, bolton with john right? bolton yeah, yeah. <laughs> she like faced off with bolton and she made him yeah. look like a total dumbass uh so people should check that out i think i retweeted the video that she posted but that was pretty awesome. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Assange, it's a thing that I, I feel like I should talk about more often. I don't really, uh, you know, cover him enough myself, I don't think. So I this, mm -hmm. I think, gives me a good chance to try to get more people's uh, attention on the case. Yeah. Well, congrats on getting the speaking spot, man. That'll be that'll be cool alongside all those giants. So, uh, yeah, if anyone's in the D.C. area, go check that link out in the description. We'd love to see you there. And then, like I said at the beginning of the show, I'll be speaking in Goldsboro, Maryland, along with uh, Spike Cohen and a few other people on Sunday. Um, I'm going to be talking about that. They asked me to come speak about Israel, Palestine and how there could be a free market solution to the problem. And oh, nice. lots of people might be like, oh, my God, how could you ever arrive at a solution? But 
you know, it's really not this ancient holy war taking place. There were Jews and Muslims living side by side for hundreds of years before the British and the Americans eventually got involved and started reconstructing Israel as a state and expelling people and murdering people. So uh, the, the solution is actually kind of obvious, but um, definitely check that out too. That's linked in the description as well. That's Liberty Speaks in Maryland. Um, make sure you guys follow Dave on Twitter. I've got his Twitter linked in the description. I've got antiwar.com linked in the description and I've got his new show, uh, anti-war news with Dave DeCamp. It's real nice. He does little like 20, 30 minute uh, videos about the, you know, kind of summarizing the anti-war news for the day. He does it a few times a week. Uh, it's very informative if you want to listen to it while you're going to work or when you get home from work or on your coffee break or something. Uh, it kind of keeps you all caught up. But uh, any last thoughts you want to leave us with, Dave? And we'll end the show. Um yeah, it's our fundraiser at antiwar.com, actually. Um, so if people want to go there, we actually have a letter from Noam Chomsky. He wrote us a, a, a letter because he reads antiwar.com. We heard him at like a webinar that he did mention us and reach out to him. And he wrote us this great letter, which is cool. I mean, whatever you think of him, Chomsky sent a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of down the rabbit hole. I mean, reading him was one of the first things that led me to getting where I am today. Uh, but And he writes like specific things about, things that I covered in his letter. So like he reads, uh, like he actually, it's really cool. Um, so, and it's a great letter. Um, and we got some other endorsements, this, this fundraiser season. And, uh, so go check that out. You go to antiwar.com slash donate. Um, and there's different ways you could give us money, but we could really use the help. It's been, times have been pretty tough for everybody and including us as well. Uh, so go check that out. And again, my show, if people want like a daily, Five days a week, I put out uh, news kind of just from like a non-interventionist point of view. Uh, I try to keep it not too like opinionated. Uh, you know, I have clearly my my opinion and my views, but uh, I just try to kind of deliver the news. Um, yeah. And it's on YouTube, Odyssey. I think I'm going to get it on, on Rumble. And then uh, also audio, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's where most people listen to it because it's kind of the best to like put in, put on in your car or something when you're driving to work. But yeah, check all that stuff out. Oh, also, um, you can buy antiwar.com merch at toplobster.com now. Uh, that's where I got this hoodie. Yeah, so that's right. Um, go check it out. Yeah, that stuff's really good quality. Uh, so people should definitely, that's a cool way you could support us. Um, I don't have any of it in reaching distance, but I mean, if you're, uh, you know, viewers, they, they know Top Lobster. Mm -hmm. And he makes good stuff. And uh, yeah, it's really cool uh, to be partnered with him. Yeah, he makes my stuff too. So, in the links in the description, if you go to my link tree, you can click on merchandise and that will take you right to the top lobster uh, naturalist capitalist section. And after you buy some of my merch, you can just go find the antiwar.com section and get plenty of that. But uh, yeah, Dave, I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. I'm sure nothing's going to calm down and there's going to always be, unfortunately, a lot to talk about. The day you run out of stuff to talk about is going to be a good day for humanity, but we know that's yeah. not coming anytime soon. So thanks for coming on again, man. Thanks, Reed.